today on CityCast Philly. It's the Friday News Roundup. We're talking about ballot deadlines, asbestos in schools, and a happy hour for medical workers. It's Friday, March 10th, 2023. I'm Trinae and here's what Philly's talking about. I'm joined by Vanessa Maria Graber, News Voices Director at Free Press and President of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, Philadelphia Chapter. Hey, Vanessa. Hi, how are you? I'm good. And Lawrence McGlynn, co-host and producer of the Philadelphia Hall Monitor. Hey, Lawrence. Hi, it's so nice to be with you and my friend Vanessa. So it's great to be here. Yes. Before we get started in all these news topics of the week, and it's been a week, I've got to ask y'all, because this week was International Women's Day, and this month is celebrating all women history. So I got to ask, who is your favorite Pennsylvanian or Philadelphian woman in history? <laughs> Don't all go off. <laughs> how, would, it, would it be okay if I started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My favorite Philadelphian, um, Caroline LeCount, because she did some amazing work in the 1800s with um, integrating the streetcars in Philadelphia. Um, We actually featured her story on the podcast last month. They're thinking of renaming Taney Street LeCount Street. And so if you're listening to the show, you can click that link in our show notes and check that episode out. But yeah, Caroline LeCount. Um, one of my favorite Philadelphians. One of my favorite people that I actually met while working at Philly Cam was Trudy Haynes. And if you don't know Trudy Haynes, she is iconic woman in journalism, um, very inspiring. And she became the nation's first African-American TV weather reporter. And even though she's not from Philadelphia, she went on to work at KYW, CBS, and um, spent the rest of her life here. She recently passed, but up until her death last year, she was still making media, hosting TV shows, and doing philanthropic work. And yeah, she is definitely an inspiration. I remember seeing her at Philly Cam, and I was just in awe. Um, I loved her spirit and her passion for, for news. Larry, do you have any favorite Pennsylvanian or Philadelphia women? So in, in the... The time between you asked that question and Vanessa spoke, I had to Google really quick to make sure the people I was thinking of were from Philadelphia, and I couldn't verify it. So what I'm going to do is go with the safe one here and say Betsy Ross. Okay. And when we talk about symbolism in the United States of America, we have to talk about the flag and all the good things that means and all the negative things that means and how we interpret what that flag means for us in this country and and how we use it as a protest tool how we use it as a celebratory tool, um, and all the things that come into that. So I'm going to go with Betsy Ross. Got it. Awesome. Well, thanks, y'all. I just wanted to shake things up a little bit this morning. And you certainly did. <laughs> I knew it. I was like, I'm going to get them on this one. Okay. So going back to our uh, our conversations. Um, so, Vanessa, what top stories uh, caught your eye this week? For me, it was the Temple Student Graduate Association strike. I actually just recently learned that they were going on strike, and it turns out they actually voted in November of last year. Um, Overwhelmingly, 99% voted yes to striking, and they're in the sixth week of their strike. 
Um, and it's the first time in the Temple Student Graduate Association's 20-year history that they are striking. And um, recently, the Inquirer reported this week that there's some progress being made um, after many weeks of negotiation. And so um, when I looked into it, I found out that they're striking for a living wage. Mm -hmm. Most notable to me was that the average graduate employee pay at Temple is $19,500 a year. And when I was a graduate student um, working at the University of North Carolina, um, when I worked on my PhD program, that is what I was paid back in 2004. So if you can wow, imagine, okay. you know, with, yeah, right, that I was paid around $19,000 back then. And that's what Temple graduate students are, are making now. Many graduate students are teaching assistants or they're actually teaching college courses. They're researching. Mm -hmm. They're doing a number of jobs. They're looking for a base wage pay of $32,800, which still seems pretty low. Mm -hmm. um, they're also asking for health care for dependents and families. Mm -hmm. um, it's really expensive, apparently, to add people onto their health care plan. And so this has been really difficult for students who have spouses and children. And they're also looking for longer parental and bereavement leave. Um, Temple administration is reporting um, the progress and they've recently restored their health subsidies um, this week. They were taken away from the students last mm -hmm. month, as well as their tuition benefits. They were also taken away since they're on strike. And so they are expected to pay their tuition this week or they're not going to be able to register for classes and they're going to face a late fee. Yeah. And I also read uh, in WHYY news that they're maybe some union efforts for Penn students um, as well. The medical uh, students who are seeking residencies, they also have similar demands for uh, better pay and better, better child care options as well. Um, yeah, recently, the University of California state system had a really big strike that made national news. So I'm wondering, you know, if... if these strikes happening in other places are, are starting to create a domino effect. And here in Philadelphia, where you see Temple and now Penn students beginning to organize. Well, yeah. And, and this is, to me, fundamentally important for a lot of reasons. When, when we talk about labor rights, we're talking about the rights of like everybody. And it's it, the, the troubling thing about this is I, I have a, a reverence for, for Temple University. Uh, I, I'm a graduate. The, the school was very good to me, treated me very well. Same, same. And when you see what's happening now with the way the institution has treated these students, and I and I I would not even necessarily say they're completely students. They're also employees of the institution. They're doing a lot of work there. They teach classes. They they work with students. They do all kinds of things. The way the institutions handle this, I think, has been appalling. When when you start taking away people's benefits because they're trying to negotiate a better deal, and by the way. We were serious about this. The, the negotiations maybe would would have already taken place. You wouldn't gotten to the place where the students feel like they have to strike. And, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully it gets resolved very soon so people can get back on track with their lives and their studies. So when it gets to some more stories, Larry, you covered the recent budget proposal uh, down in City Hall. We talked about that uh, on our show on Monday, but I'm I'm curious, how has council been reacting to Mayor Kenny's budget proposal? 
I think overall, not just from council, but from any from observers, it's been received pretty favorably. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, added money to to anti-gun violence programs, uh, more money for parks, trying to expand library service, those kinds of things. People walked away thinking, OK, this is good. You know, there's some good things in here. Now, where, where we're really going to find out is when the budget hearings begin at the end of the month. March 28th, the budget hearings are set to begin. They're going to go all through May. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, usually beyond that, actually, they could go to June, depending on who they want to come back and see. But every department comes before city council to justify their budget and answer questions about it. And, you know, in that time, we might see some things move around. But for right now, where we are at the moment, I think everybody feels like this is a solid budget. And part of that, too, is because there's extra money this year. There's American Recovery Plan funds Mm -hmm. that haven't been spent down yet. And the city brought in more in tax revenue than they expected. So there is a budget surplus this year. um, And if you're going to use it, now's the time, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We're facing severe problems. So let's let's use some of that money to you know, start to help in those areas. And Vanessa, you brought this story, which, you know, is also, you know, the backdrop story that's happening, you know, down in City Hall. This week was the deadline for candidates to file paperwork so that they could get on the ballot uh, in May. This story was surprising. I didn't realize how many people were wanting to get these seats. And we're talking, obviously, the mayor, city council, the sheriff's office, um, city controller. Vanessa, is this like a special year? Like, why why do so many people want these jobs this year? Well, um, you know, for many reasons, right? So, well, just to give folks a rundown, um, over 90 candidates filed paperwork um, this week um, on Tuesday to drop off their petition so they could get on the ballot. Um, and the next uh, coming weeks, uh, they will, uh, the, you know, staff at the Board of Elections will be looking through those petitions and verifying the information. And then we'll see who actually makes the ballot. Um, so right now that number 90 could go down a, a bunch. We'll okay. have to see how everybody makes the ballot. Okay. You're not officially a candidate until you're on the ballot. So I want to make that clear to our listeners. There's a lot of people campaigning as candidates, but if you don't make the ballot, you're not actually a viable candidate. Okay, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and this is why um, this is one of the underreported stories because I don't think people realized how many folks were running. So for mayor's race, 13 candidates um, filed paperwork, 12 Democrats and one Republican. That's David O. I guess nobody is um, going to be running against him in the primary. And then over 60 people are vying for city council seats. There's other positions available. Um, as we know, city controller, the sheriff, the register of wills. Those are also positions that people have to run for in the city of Philadelphia. And I think that people 
are especially interested this year for many reasons, right? There's obviously a really big concern about public safety, right? That seems to be the theme of the race. Mm -hmm. Um, I have been covering some of the candidate forums for mayor, and that is the driving conversation, um, is what everyone is going to do about crime, about the number of homicides, about the selling of drugs and the opioid crisis. And I think there's a lot of people who are dissatisfied with what the current administration and city council is doing. And so that's a reason why a lot of candidates have said they've jumped in the race. There's also uh, a lot of vacancies, right? So there are, uh, I believe, eight seats available um, for people to run in city council this year. And uh, of course, we have uh, five at-large seats And so three of them might be taken by the incumbents, Isaiah Thomas, Catherine Gilmore Richardson, and Jimmy Herity. They might not, um, but that still leaves two new vacancies. So that is anyone's game. And so I think the at-large race is definitely going to be really interesting to watch. That's where we see the most candidates. But like I said, um, not official until you get past you get this on process that, right here. On the ballot, yes. So we'll be checking back in a couple of weeks to see who actually made the ballot. But apparently um, this is not really that historic. Um, at times over 100 people have have ran for city council. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so right now, you know, this doesn't necessarily compare to that. Um, but I do think in recent years, it has been a much higher number of people running for council than we have seen, in, you know, recently. You know, another story that caught my eye this week was the Building 21 relocation, right? And the school district officials initially said that inspectors found asbestos in the auditorium and hallways there during a recent inspection. And they had to relocate students to Strawberry Mansion High School because they, at the time, they only had a certain amount of virtual uh, school days that they could do. But uh, since then, the state did grant them more days that the students could be virtual. But uh, earlier this week, you know, parents were just really upset that um, they had to make this transition to a new school building, right? They had to uh, come up with a different, you know, commutes and worry about transportation, and safety and, you know, a whole whole plethora of issues, really. Um, and, and the district had known about the asbestos at the building for two years. Well, there's a, there's a lot. I feel like we, we have one of these stories every couple of weeks now where something like this is happening with the school district. And it's been going on for, for a long time. And one of the main culprits for this, getting back to budgeting a little bit, is what happens at the state level. Philadelphia doesn't get its fair share of, of funding for anything. You know, Philadelphia, for every dollar we send out, we maybe get 75 cents back from the state in terms of funding, probably a lot less than that, depending on how you look at it. But one of the key issues here, the state passed a fair funding formula that was going to boost revenue for all school districts, especially ours. But they put a caveat in it that said that only applies to new funding. So only about 12% of education funding goes through this formula, which means it's still completely inequitable. To put it another way, when we talk about the infrastructure issues that are plaguing the school district, I think the school district's yearly budget is about $3.5 billion, somewhere in that neighborhood. It would take $4 billion 
to fix all the issues in the schools, all the infrastructure. And that's including issues. the asbestos. Yes. Um, also, air um, conditioning, air conditioners, yep. lead paint, lead paint, <laughs> uh, water. Oh, right. The water issues, right. Mm -hmm. Water issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of these schools, you, you can't really put air conditioning on the roof because it can't, they're old buildings. Mm -hmm. You might have to build a new building. So when you look at, when we're talking about asbestos in one school, this is decades of, and I don't even want to call it neglect. It, it's willful neglect um, on, on the part of the state that has caused these problems. And when you but look it's it up, also disproportionate in neighborhoods and districts yes. where the poverty level is mm -hmm. higher. That's right. And so it's, to say that they're just doing this, you know, willfully to Philadelphia is not actually true. It's it's to black and brown communities mm -hmm. and, and the schools where there is a much lower um, average, you know, salary and income. And so that's what makes it especially egregious for me because if this were happening in Roxborough or in Somerton or in, you know, a wealthier neighborhood, I don't think that the those conditions would continue as, as long as this has in this particular school. What also stood out to me about this particular story that along with, you know, the infrastructure concerns it also parents voice concerns about safety and and logistics having to send your child to a new school every morning you have to fight traffic you have yourself have to get to, to work right um or school you, have, you may have other children and now you have to send them into a new neighborhood that they may not be familiar with. You know, the district did say that they would provide private entrances for students and and bus buses to, to shuttle them. And even more security as a mom with two kids. That also made me upset because I'm like, these parents are scared. They had to make these dramatic changes to their lives within days. And so, Vanessa, you spoke to you said you, you know, you went to some of these uh, mayoral forums in the in, in the past weeks. Is anyone talking about that? They're not. I mean, I think Helen Gim, you know, talks about it in a broader sense in terms of, you know, fixing crumbling public school infrastructure and I think that that is something that is talked about very broadly, not just limited to public schools, right? Like our crumbling infrastructure nationwide, there's highways, there's bridges, there's roads, you know, and so it's part of a larger problem. I mean, I, I have heard other candidates like Sherelle Parker and, and, and also Helen Gim talk about making buildings, school buildings greener and working mm -hmm. with the unions to do that. But anything else that I've heard around schools has, has been about trying to create jobs, job placement mm -hmm. programs. And really, like, I I wrote about this recently, you know, in, in terms of the conversation around gun violence, right? And there's, there's two things I want to highlight. And there was a Penn and a Columbia study that came out that said beautifying and repairing people's homes, like investing in, yes. in, into those neighborhoods actually, you know, was correlated to a reduction in crime. Yep. And so I would think that something similar is true with schools, right? Like fixing up our schools, investing in them, making them state-of-the-art technology and learning centers 
could potentially, right, like reduce violence within the schools because violence is not always in people's neighborhoods or out on the streets with these teens. We're seeing a lot of violence in the schools with within the school day, um, you know, in Philadelphia. And so something is happening there. Imagine if you go to school, it's falling apart, right? And the teachers are not paid well. They're tired. They're overworked. There's all types of policing and security. I mean, that creates a culture and a climate that I don't think is conducive to learning. And so when I see the massive amounts of construction happening in Fishtown and now um, East Kensington and North Philadelphia, right, it's it's creeping right up and also in neighborhoods like Point Breeze and, and other parts of South Philly and University City, they're building things instantly, right? Like literally like a month will pass by and That's I will see a new building. And so, point. you know, I wonder why aren't we building community centers and schools mm. and, and other community resources at the same rate we can do it right like that's a really good point. I never I never even connected that. That's really good. Well and, and the other part of that too is you know, when when we look at the, this budget surplus we have now, that's one of the questions I'm going to have as we go through the process is, well, how much of this are you going to use now mm. as, as investments? And one of the things that our show had been talking about for a while is when interest rates were really, really low during the pandemic, wh- why didn't the city just say, OK, we're going to borrow like a billion dollars right now because the rates are so low. Let's invest that in something. And and that didn't happen. Um, nobody did that, though, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But, th- you know, but th- those are the questions that you kind of wonder, well, what about more investment here in Philadelphia? What more can we do? And when you have a six billion dollar operating budget, there's a lot of power in that that maybe is untapped. And since recording this, more information actually has come out about asbestos in Philly schools. Mastery's Simon Gratt High School and Gratt's Prep Middle School in North Philly have closed after damaged asbestos was found during a regular inspection this week on Wednesday. You know, we will keep following this story. But in the meantime, we'll have a link to this ongoing story in our show notes. All right. Before we head out for the weekend, we got to end on some good news. Uh, Vanessa, you found a story about how a community in the suburbs really like supported a local pizzeria. Can you tell us about that? So, yeah, there is a pizzeria in Hatboro, which is right outside the city. But I chose this story because, you know, uh, it was very relatable and, and I've witnessed similar things in my life. And so the name of the pizzeria is called Amy's, Amy's Pizzeria. It's owned by Latino immigrants Omar Quinones and his wife, Kaylin Flores. And they had an incident last week. You might have seen it. It blew up on TikTok and other social media platforms. And it was a woman spouting racist remarks at Quinones because she was upset that their television at the pizzeria was paying uh, Spanish language programming. And as, you know, a, a Puerto Rican woman grew up in a Latino household where, you know, Telemundo Univision was on all the time, right. you know, this for me hit home and I couldn't understand why somebody would be mad at that. But the feel-good part of the story is that tons and tons of people from all over the world started um, communicating with the owners and offering support and letting them know that they do appreciate them and that it is totally okay to embrace your culture and your language and that they they are very much important 
members of the community. And so since then, they've been flooded with tons and tons of orders. On um, the first day after the incident, um, they received 250 orders, and it just continued to start. They received so many orders that they had to actually close for a day oh, wow. um, to restock. And then they issued notice saying, thank you so much, you know, um, for your support. We actually only have two people working in the kitchen, so we can't keep up. Um, but they also said that people had been making donations and that people were driving an hour or even two hours just to come buy a slice of pizza and say hello. And so, you know, that restores my faith in humanity. I have witnessed people being upset um, because folks were speaking in Spanish. You know, I had witnessed that many times as a child. And, you know, in 2023, people are still upset. I don't understand it, right? We are a multicultural society. This is a sanctuary city here in Philadelphia. We speak many languages. There's many different cultures here that should be celebrated. And I'm glad to see that the majority of people still believe in that and came out in droves to offer this couple support. Because again, we can't let one person with a negative or racist attitude make us think that everybody is like that. And so that made me really happy. And yeah. yeah. Larry, what about you? Uh, the city of Philadelphia is going to commit $62 million for fare free transit for 25,000 Philadelphians living below the poverty line. That's a program that's, I think, going to start next year. And I think that's, that's a great first step when we talk about equity and alleviating poverty. And that also includes city workers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's, it's one of the things that they're using to try to attract people to, because the city has about an 18% vacancy rate for jobs right now. And that's okay. one of the things that they think might be able to entice people to, to come work for the city. But I think for, for people below the poverty level, SEPT is their lifeline to get to work, get the appointments. That's a great thing to do. That's good. One story that stood out to me was a local restaurant called Co-op Restaurant and Bar. They are offering a happy hour. And this happy hour is really geared to medical workers who have to work that late night shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. They can never, you know, make it to a happy hour. So they have something called Sips and Scrubs, which is a happy hour Monday through Friday, 7 (laughs) a.m. to 9 a.m., where they're offering $5 mimosas, Bloody Marys, and 10% discount on food if you show your medical ID. And I think that's just really great. Hey, we're still not out of the clear with, you know, COVID and flu. We're still wintertime. And um, our medical community is still working really, really hard, especially in the emergency rooms. And I think that's great. More restaurants and visitors should show them that kind of love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Co-op Restaurant and Bar is located on South 33rd Street. So go check that out. All right. Vanessa Maria Graber, News Voices Director at Free Press and President of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists Philadelphia Chapter. Thank you so much for joining me on CityCast Philly. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Lawrence McGlynn, co-host and producer of the Philadelphia Hall Monitor. Thank you, too, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's time for the tip of the day, where we share a life hack for living in Philly. 
On today's episode, we talked a lot about some of the nuances when it comes to getting your name on a ballot. So if you want to learn more about how elections work in Pennsylvania, read Title 25, that's the election code, by going to legis.state.pa.us. We'll have a link in our show notes. If you have a tip of the day, we'd love to hear from you too. Call or text us at 215-259-8170. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. Our lead producer is Mallory Folk. Our producer is Abby Fritz. Our Hey Philly newsletter editor is Brittany Valentine. And our host is me, Trinae Nuri. Music is by Philly's own Interminable, with additional music from All the Kimonos and James Weldon. If you enjoy the show, really all this week of episodes, tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Philly. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Have a great weekend and be safe. Bye. Rate this show. Damn it, the train. <laughs>